This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We're, we are glad to have our good buddy, Clay Scroggins. So give a nice warm welcome to Clay. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Ted. Uh, last couple summers ago, I was here and I forgot to dress appropriately for church because we were coming here for this camp. And so I had to run by Target. And the only shirt that they had that I could wear was a shirt that had all these little martinis on it. And so Ted texted me last night or the, earlier this week and said, hey, we're excited about you being here. Make sure you wear that martini shirt. So I, I do appreciate that this is one of the few churches that I feel like you, get, you got just the most wonderful normal, extraordinary, accepting people that you would let the pastor wear a martini shirt. I really appreciate that. So if you're just checking out this church, uh, if if it were me, I don't live here, but if it were me, this is where I would go to church. And if you like the preaching, great. If you don't like the preaching, come back because I'm not the normal guy anyway. So uh, that's just a little promise. Um, Today we're going to talk about two big ideas and I'm just going to give them to you up front, and then i got to tell you this little story of where I've experienced it most recently. But the two big ideas, I want to talk about peace today. And I want to talk about forgiveness today, and we're going to talk about how those two things work together. But the place that I have most recently had to um, learn about forgiveness is uh, really what's been happening in our own family as of last week. Big week for us last week. I'll explain that in just a little bit. But this is a picture of our family. My wife, Jenny, and I, we are, um, I am definitely in love with her. She's in love with me most days. I'm not always easy to be married to, but we have five kids This school year, our oldest will go into ninth grade. Our youngest will go into kindergarten. We're really, really um, grateful for the life that God has given us. And the person that's, or the one that's missing in this picture is really where I've had to experience forgiveness. But this guy right here, yeah. This uh, was our dog. His name is Tater Tot. It's a family name. Uh, we, um, we, We love Tater Tot. I still love Tater Tot. But I got to tell you the story of how he came into our family, how he left our family. Um, we, I, I wasn't really a dog person. I never, I didn't think I was. I never really, I grew up with a basset hound who smelled terrible. Therefore, our house smelled terrible. Therefore, I couldn't invite my friends over. And so that was pretty much the extent of my experience with dogs. How many of you, you're a dog person? Yeah. And how many of you are a cat person? Wonderful. <laughs> this lady just said, no. <laughs> In the first service, I got to tell you, when I said, how many of you are cat people, somebody over here started booing. (laughs) Now, I do love this woman's conviction, but it is, it made me think like, who are the people in life that I'm like, when someone says, are you a that kind of person? I'm just like, no, (laughs) I love that. Um, All right. This is a quick story about our dog. I'll try not to make this too long because it does have a lot of other parts to it. But so uh, um, as of about two years ago, I resigned from my job. I was a pastor in Atlanta at a church that had multiple locations. And about four years ago, they asked me to move locations. And it really disturbed my soul. It it made me have, it just had had all these questions. I was about to turn 40. I was going through this bunch of stuff in life. And and it really just, it it threw me off. It it, it messed me up. I mean, they they asked me to move. Basically, it's about the same distance from Springfield to Branson. And so it was a pretty big life change. I mean, our kids were going to have to get new schools. I was obviously going to work in a new place. My wife was going to have to get a new target. It was a huge change for us, turning life upside down. And so I was nervous about telling our kids. And so she said, I got an idea. When you tell our kids, keep this in your back pocket, key words. She said, tell them we are moving. And if they get sad, tell them, but we're getting a dog. And I was like, that is a great idea. You are so brilliant. 
great concept, love it. And so I gathered all the kids together. Hey, everybody got something I got to tell you, which that didn't alarm them, right? And so I said, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. I'll start with the good news. The good news is we're getting a dog and the bad news is we're moving. And she comes over and pulls it. She said, I said back pocket. I didn't say lead with it. I said back pocket. And so a couple of months later, we ended up getting Tater Tot, the dog. And it didn't take us a long time to realize there was something off about this dog. Um, but it really didn't show up until about a year, a year and a half into uh, us owning him. He started getting more and more protective, which I took it as love. I was like, it's because he loves us. But where it really start, uh, became a problem is when I got a phone call from a guy who was doing some yard work for us. His name is Ivan, wonderful guy. Uh, Ivan and I have a, built a good relationship, mostly because his dad, Norberto, doesn't speak any English, and I don't speak a lot of Spanish, and so I have a hard time communicating with Norberto. And so Ivan calls me randomly one day. I knew they were uh, doing, laying some pine straw in our, in our bushes or something. I don't know. I'm not trying to like, act like we're all rich and stuff, but I was having someone put pine straw in our bushes. And he calls me, and he says, um, Mr. Clay, can I ask you a question? Has your dog been vaccinated? And this was during 2020. And so I was, my immediate thought was, Jenny, has Tater Tot had the jab? Like, are we doing this? Did I miss a memo? Did I miss where we're now giving dogs the COVID-19 vaccine? I honestly, that was my first thought. And it took me a few minutes to realize, oh, He's not asking about that vaccine. He's asking about rabies because he went on to say, your dog bit my dad. And I was like, oh no. And he drew blood. And so I was like, this is bad. And so I profusely apologized and felt horrible about it. And my wife, I mean, she was greatly disturbed because she was like, we can't live like this. We have five kids. We've got a lot going on. It's already a circus. It's basically a zoo. And we can't live worried about people coming to our house like our dog's going to bite them, right? And I was like, that's legitimate, but let's calm down and let's maybe just see where this thing goes, right? Well, about a week later, he bit an Amazon worker. Yeah. Uh, my wife was like, I mean, honestly, I'm like, I told you, we can't live like this. Now I'm actually thinking, should we be ordering less on Amazon? And I'm like, we should keep that... We should certainly keep that on the table as an option, right? I mean, we shouldn't just throw that out immediately, but let's, let's think through that, right? But I mean, this person was obviously very upset and was taking pictures of it and was like, you'll be hearing from my attorneys and all this. I mean, I, and I get it. I understand it. And so we were like, oh no, we've got to do something about this. And so she had heard from a friend of a friend of a friend who had knew somebody who was a 28-year-old gal moving to Atlanta and she was looking to rescue a dog. And so my wife goes this one particular day to go meet her. And as she's going to meet her, my job is falling apart. Uh, I, I knew that the end was near, and it was making me really sad. And, and also the symbolism of we got this dog to make this move that didn't end up working out and actually kind of was the beginning of the end, and now we're having to even process giving this dog away. And I mean, I, I was just a complete mess. And so she leaves to go meet the girl, and she has Tater Tot with her, and she pulls back into the driveway, and Tater Tot is not with her anymore. And I'm like, oh no. And she walks up to the front door and she was like, well, she seemed really nice and she was willing. And so I gave her tater tot. I lost it. I mean, not like in anger, like in sadness. I mean, I was so sad. I'm not kidding you. I laid in the bed for three straight hours sobbing. I have never cried like that. I can't remember the last time I've cried like that. My kids have certainly never seen me cry like that. I, I overheard them out in the hallway asking their mom, my wife, um, is dad okay? And I'll never forget my wife saying to them, he is not okay. <laughs> but, 
But then she told them, but it's not just about the dog. He's got a lot of other stuff going on right now, which I was like, that doesn't make it any better, right? Well, last week, we're serving at this camp in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. It's a camp for men and women and kids who have disabilities. And um, there was a girl that was serving at the camp as well who comes up to my wife and says hello to her. And my wife later on that day was like, do you know that girl over there? I was like, never seen her before in my life. And she said, well, she came and talked to me like I know her, but I vaguely, I mean, she looks kind of familiar, but I don't, I don't ever remember meeting her. And then the next day it dawns on her, oh my goodness, that's Tater Tot's new owner. We're serving at this camp together. We were together all last week. And I mean, I was so excited because we had had all these fights about what kind of adoption that we were gonna have. My wife wanted, she insisted upon a closed adoption. She was like, I don't want to meet these people. I don't want to track with them. I don't want to have a relationship with Tater Tot anymore. We are cutting the line. It is over. I wanted an open adoption. It wasn't my fault that the dog didn't work with us, that the dog didn't jive with us. And I wanted to still see the dog. But we had had a closed adoption for two years until Melissa showed up at this camp. And I had all these questions for her. I wanted to know. So was it us? Was it, I mean, were we just too much? Is Tater Tot a normal dog? And she starts laughing. She's like, oh, no, he's anything from normal. She said, when my mom introduces him to other people, other people will be like, oh, is it a golden doodle? And she goes, no, it's a wackadoodle. And I'm like, that is so perfect because that's what we thought. I'm telling you, it was so, there was so much redemption in it. But let me tell you where the greatest amount of redemption was. I had this um, really close friend of mine who we've been friends for 20 years But during this season, I don't know why he felt the need to really challenge me on a lot of different things. And I was not really feeling it. I wasn't really receiving. I wasn't in a healthy place. In fact, about the dog, he's like a real dog expert. And so he told me during that season, he said, well, you know, there aren't bad dogs. There's just bad dog owners. Yeah, I cut him off. No, I didn't. We still had a relationship, but I was, honestly, I was really upset about it. It really hurt. It bothered me. I was already carrying a lot of guilt and shame and brokenness, and I just didn't need that on top of it. And it made me realize the past week after now I've been able to talk with him and laugh with him and tell him that he was wrong, that there evidently are, I hesitate to say bad dogs, but there are dogs that need some special attention that a family of seven cannot give that dog, right? And it has created a lot of opportunity for restoration, but it's really made me think a lot about bad blood. We, we all have bad blood in relationships. We all have the potential of bad blood in, in relationships. We're not the only ones that have experienced this. Every person in here has somebody that you either have a problem with, that has a problem with you, there's a broken relationship, it's somebody that you haven't spoken with. Bad, bad blood, bad blood is difficult because it's painful. And so today I want to talk about that idea. I want to talk about what do we do with those broken relationships in our life. Bad blood is, it's costly and it's complicated, right? It's costly, it hurts, it takes life away from us. And it's complicated. If you were to share your story, you would go, you have no idea all that I've been through. You have no idea what he's done to me. You have no idea what she took from me. You don't, you don't, you can't even begin to understand it. And you might be absolutely right for feeling that way But I promise you, feeling that way is not what's healthiest for you, nor is it for me. Because bad blood is costly, it's also complicated, it it, it costs you peace, and it complicates every other relationship in your life. You don't have to raise your hand for this, but how many of you, whether in this room or outside today, how many of you would say, I have somebody in my life who has 
some bad blood with someone and it's affected my life. And it's not even my situation. Maybe it's something that a sibling has with your parent or maybe it's something that your, a brother has with one of your sisters or maybe it's something that some other business associates or business partners have and their bad blood has affected your life. I'm telling you, it costs peace, but it's also extremely complicated. The, the good news for us is that the path to peace is paved with empathy. This is not easy, and if we had more time, we would spend more time talking about what does that mean, but I'll, I'll give you this simple little illustration for empathy. This is the way I think about empathy. You know, right now uh, in England, in Liverpool, there's this big golf tournament happening. Anybody tracking with it? Some of you are like, why would I be here if I was tracking with it? No. And then some of you can't wait to get home to watch it. Uh, and then some of you can't wait to turn it on so you can take a wonderful nap, right, while it's on in the background. And then some of you couldn't care less. But this is the way I like to think about empathy. When, when pro golfers putt, you know, there's the hole here and the ball here. They get behind it and they look at it to see. And what are they looking at? What's the contour of the ground? Which way is the grain growing? And what is this putt going to do? And the pro golfers do what the amateur golfers shouldn't necessarily do. Not only do they take a look at it from this side, but what else do they do? They walk all the way around. Some of you are like, this is usually when I take my best nap, right? It's slow and it's long and you have to be patient. But they go all the way to this side and then they look at it from this side to try to see, is there anything that they missed? Is there something they might be able to see from this side? That is what empathy is. Empathy is taking this long walk around to see it from the other side. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's true. But when you walk around and see it from the other person's side, put it on, wear it, try it out. Don't judge it, but put it on and take it on as truth. doesn't mean it's true, but wear it as truth and see what it does. Oftentimes you see something different. You feel something different. You go, oh, well now I realize, now I understand. If I would have known that then, that would have made sense. It's the power of empathy. But if empathy is what paves the path of peace, forgiveness is the vehicle to move you down the path. Forgiveness is the vehicle that gets us, that moves us toward peace. And I know it's not easy. I, I am aware of that. In fact, over the last couple of years, I have had to experience forgiveness more from other people and to other people than I ever have in my life. And before that, I had preached on forgiveness a, bun a bunch. In fact, let me ask you, what's easier Forgiving someone or preaching on forgiveness? I promise you, it is so much easier to forgive someone, excuse me, to preach on forgiveness than it is to actually forgive. So before we even get into Romans 12, which is where we're going to be, we're going to look at a couple of verses in Romans 12. I want to give you just a couple of things that forgiveness is not, all right? Before you already write me off. Before you already think, oh, well, there's no way I'm doing this. You don't get me. You're up there with your JV preacher problems. I'm living in the real world with my varsity problems. Before you even go there, let me just put this on. Let's lay some groundwork. Here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning. Forgiveness is not saying what the other person did is okay. Forgiveness is not saying what the other person did was right. No, forgiveness is also not forgetting, right? You've heard that. Forgive and forget. Some of you... Your, your pain is so deep, you go, there, I'll never forget what you did to me. As silly as that story is, my friend telling me there's no bad dogs, there's just bad dog owners, I, I will never forget that he said that at a really painful, really difficult point in time for me. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's not about condoning. It's not about forgetting. And it's not about waiting for an apology. Forgiveness does not have to be predicated upon by an apology. Some of you... There is an opportunity for forgiveness and you will never get an apology from the other person. 
The other person will never know all that they did. They will never wake up to the idea that they really hurt you. They will never own up to the idea that they really hurt you. Some of you have an opportunity to forgive someone who's not even alive, right? And so waiting on an apology, yeah, if that's the case, we're going to be waiting a long time. No, forgiveness is possible without condoning. Forgiveness is possible when we'll never forget, and it's certainly possible without an apology. Unforgiveness, let me flip it around, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Have you ever heard this quote? I think this is by an author named Anne Lamott. Forgiveness is drink ingesting rat poison, but then staring at the rat, going, when is it going to die? Meanwhile, you're the one who's taken the poison. Un- unforgiveness is locking up the prisoner without realizing that the prisoner is, is you. Unforgiveness keeps someone locked up. Yeah, it keeps you and I locked up. Unforgiveness is letting somebody live rent-free in your head, right? That person that you have the bad blood with, that person that you've got the problem with, the person that hurt you, you ever had an imaginary conversation about them? Have you ever had a hundred of them, right? Of course you have. Therapists will call this rumination, when you just can't stop thinking about, well, I know what I would love to say, and one day I hope that I get to say it, and over and over again, you're just thinking about it all the time, and it's occupying space in your head, and it's robbing you of peace, because it costs us peace. And it's hard to be present with other people. It complicates every other relationship. And so with that in mind, I want to look at Romans 12. Romans 12 It's not an answer, okay? It's not, oh, take this verse, take two of these verses, and then it'll be solved. No. Some of your pain is so deep, today might just be the beginning. Some of the pain that you're experiencing might be so real and so intense that today might just be God opening up our souls to the possibility of what might be. Because forgiveness ultimately is a process, right? I mean, it's hard to talk about forgiveness without quoting Taylor Swift, who said, band-aids don't fix bullet holes, right? This isn't covering it up. This isn't glossing it over. No, this is really helping us get to the root issue of what this is all about. And he gives us something that we can actually do while we're in the middle of it. It goes like this. And first, I want to read this uh, Romans 12, 18. That kind of gives us an overarching idea of what's possible in relationships. I love this first verse. Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, I love that little phrase. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Why does he start by saying, this is the Apostle Paul. Why does he start by saying, if it is possible? Because it might not be possible, right? I I appreciate that he's opening us up to the idea that you might not be able to live at peace with everyone. You know that. Some of you are going, I don't know that I'll ever live at peace with that person. Some of you know for sure. I know I'll never do business with them again. I know they'll never live in my home again. I know I'll never donate money to them again, right? But what he's going to introduce us to is this idea that You might not be able to have peace in the relationship because that's not determined by you, right? How many does it take to tango? 
two. I don't know why I counted them here, but two. It takes two people to tango. That it's a decision you've got to make and it's a decision the other person has to make as well to be able to have peace in the relationship. But even when there's not peace in the relationship, it's possible for there to be peace about the relationship. You can have peace about it. You may never have peace in it, but you can always have peace about it if this little phrase I love, as far as it depends on you, would you be willing to do as much as depends on you? Would you be willing to go as far as you need to go, as far as you can go? And he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, the people that you love, the people that you want to love, the people that you have a hard time loving, live at peace with everyone. And when we don't have peace, particularly when we've been hurt, our instinct is to do what he says in Romans 12, verse 19. Our instinct, he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. I know you're going to want to take revenge. She hurt you. He took something from you. He makes you feel a certain kind of way, and you want to get revenge. Now, this is difficult to talk about revenge, because revenge in this day, I think more like the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know? where revenge is like, I'm going to capture your cattle, you know? Or revenge is like a country song. Like, I'm going to take a baseball bat to your windshield, right? Thanks, Carrie Underwood or Miranda Lambert. Pick your favorite country singer, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go flatten your tires. I'm going to go scrape the side of your car. I'm going to wait for you outside with a shotgun. That's revenge in the real world. Now, you all look like a very sophisticated, very lovely group of people that are not trying to get locked up in life, right? You're trying to keep your freedoms about you. And so revenge looks a little bit different for us. I think in 2023, revenge for most people is secretly celebrating someone else's demise, right? It's that internal celebration of someone else's misfortune. Oh, did you hear She just went through her third divorce. Oh, no. I hate that. Don't act like you have never been on Facebook to go see what all your exes are doing now. And don't act like I'm the only one that got excited to find out that there was something in their life that had gone wrong. Right? Oh, you are so judgmental the way you're looking at me right now. (laughs) We've all done that. And I think that's the modern day revenge is we secretly celebrate somebody else's misfortune. And obviously that's wrong. Obviously that's not what God wants for us. Obviously the Apostle Paul is going, do not do that. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But instead, he says, instead of taking revenge, leave room for God's wrath. I thought there would be cheering, celebrating. Hallelujah. I'm not saying there should be. I just know some of us would go like, okay, now we're talking God's wrath. Like, what's he going to do? Strike them down, cause their favorite team to lose, right? I mean, what else could happen to them? I mean, this would be great, right? And some of you, you, you've maybe prayed for that. You've prayed for the wrath of God to come down on that person. And it's understandable because the way you feel, if we heard your story, we would be like, I cannot believe it. I'm so sorry. That sounds absolutely awful. But remember the words of uh, our you know, the famous uh, during the day uh, talk show host, Dr. Phil, what would he always ask people? How's that working for you, right? It might be right for you to 
feel that way, but it's not healthy for us to feel that way. Why? Why is it not healthy for want God's wrath, to, to, for, for, for us to desire God's wrath for someone? Well, because when we fail to forgive someone, when someone has taken something from us, and we're keeping them locked up in our minds anyway, we're basically saying, I am the judge. I sit on the judge's seat. I get to determine who did right and who did wrong, and I get to determine what the punishment is going to be. And he's telling us, that is not your job. That is not my job. This is good news. It's, it's hard for us, but it's good news. You have a father in heaven who loves you so much that when someone hurts you, he says, it is mine to fix. It's mine to pay them back. It's mine to punish them. Because you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. And so you, you could deduce this, that God, God sorts out the punishment. He sorts it out when we leave it to him. But if you don't leave it to him, if you're always cheering for their demise, if you're taking revenge into your own hands, you're boxing him out. Unforgiveness, in a sense, it shuts God out. But forgiveness, this is so this is on such a heart level that forgiveness invites and allows God in. Forgiveness says, God, I'm hurting, but I trust that you are my defender, that you are my protector, that you are my provider, that you are the one that comes to my rescue. I'm trusting that with you. I'm not going to take that into my own hands because I'm not the judge. You're the judge. A lot of people have a hard time with God sitting on the seat of the judge. I, I, I've, I've found it easier the longer I've lived because there's so many things in life that I see and I think, that is not right. That is wrong. Shouldn't someone do something about that? And aren't you glad that God says, that's my job. I'm the one who sorts out right from wrong. I'm the one who sorts out what the verdict is going to be. Yeah, he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but allow room for God's wrath. For it is written, look at this, this he's calling the Old Testament. This is Old Testament God right here, all right? He says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Two big ideas here. One, it's mine to avenge. God is the one who says there are consequences to sin, when someone makes a decision that hurts someone else, there are consequences to that decision, right? You know that phrase, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? That's, that's a wonderful marketing line because we all know it. it makes us think about Vegas, but it's, it's bogus. It's the dumbest life advice because what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Not if you go to Reno, not if you go to LA, not if you go to Branson. No, it follows you wherever you go. Because your decisions have consequences. Whatever you sow, therefore you then shall reap. It's the way God works. It's the way God has ordained life to work. And so when someone makes a decision that hurts someone else, there is hell to pay. 
but it is not your hell to give them. No, God is the one who says that decision has a consequence. Now, it is also interesting how we pray for God to have mercy for us and wrath for others, right? But that's a different topic for a different day. The second part of this, he says, not only is it God's job to dish out the consequences for the decisions, but it is also mine to repay, so says the Lord. Repay what? I guess he's saying repay what was taken, right? It's God's job to repay what has been taken. That other person can't repay you. The eggs are scrambled. It's already been done. They've already taken life from you. If Even if you tried to make them pay, they cannot repay. But God says, but I can. I can pay you back. You might not ever get it back the way you had it then, but I can replenish your soul. I can refuel your hope. I can restore your life. Only God can do that. And he says, that's my job. And so when you, when you forgive, it's ultimately an act of trust. It's an act of trust saying, God, I believe you are who you are. I believe you do what you say you're going to do. And when, when we continue to maintain this posture of unforgiveness, ultimately unforgiveness is a failure to believe what God says. Ultimately, for unforgiveness is failing to believe that God really, do, really will do what he says he'll do. Unforgiveness is ultimately failing to believe that God really can restore what he says he will restore. No, instead, he gives us a different, um, he gives us a, a different activity, a different imperative. Look at what he says. This is the, at the very end of Romans 12, next verse, verse 20. He says, on the contrary, and this couldn't be more contrary, he said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't try to pay it back. No. What's that phrase? You remember we learned it in kindergarten? You kill him with kindness. You know, uh, I don't know that we want to kill anyone, nor should we wish someone to be killed, but there is something to that idea. Because how does God lead us to a place of repentance? Does anybody remember this? God, God leads people to repent through his what? His kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, God says. That there is something about, we think it's revenge that leads people to repent. We think it's anger. We think it's vindiction that leads people to repent. God says, no, his economy is upside down. His kingdom has different values and it is his kindness that leads them to repent. And I wonder if he's not, if Paul's not going, if it works for God, why wouldn't it work for you? that it's your kindness that will lead them to repentance. Look at what he says. He says, if they're, if they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this is complicated because this makes no sense to us in our day and age. But in this day and age, when this was written 2,000 years ago, there was a custom in the society where if you wronged someone, if you offended someone, if you did something you shouldn't have done to someone to hurt someone, you would carry a basket of burning coals on your head. It's the ashes that you would walk around with to represent that you were contrite, that you were re repentant. And so he's saying, when you give somebody good, when you give them something that's kind, when you do for them, instead of holding them to something, you're actually, you're getting the process started. You're heaping the coals onto their head. You got a better chance at getting them to repent by doing good rather than trying to take revenge. This is, it's so foreign to us because it makes no sense. Because we think, yeah, but if I don't make him pay, who's going to make him pay? And God says, that's my job. 
You just go and do good. You just go and be kind. Now, I'm not saying you keep loaning him money. I'm not saying you let her live with you. I'm not saying you go into business with them. There is the book Boundaries by Dr. Townsend and Dr. Cloud that has some fantastic advice about what do we do in toxic and abusive relationships. Sometimes we have to learn to love from afar. Sometimes we have to learn that we can love through our lack of assistance. Sometimes that we can actually love by not continuing to facilitate their behavior, right? Those are the more more difficult situations. You need to invite a counselor into that. You need to invite a pastor into that. You need to invite some friends and some family in on that because that gets really complicated. But for the most of us, when it comes to the things someone said, the things someone did, the 80% of the situations where we've been wronged and we've been hurt and we're trying to figure out what to do, he says, don't take revenge. No, you you forgive. You let it go. You, You cancel the debt. Verse 21 says, you, you ultimately, you do not be overcome by evil, but you overcome evil with good. The, the evil is the unforgiveness. Do not be overcome. Do not let their evil overcome you and cause you to be filled with the very thing that's going to break you. The very thing that's going to disrupt your soul. You, you know what those emotions do? Those unresolved emotions that we have? You know what they do when we just stuff them inside of us? When we just stuff unforgiveness inside of us, you know what it ultimately does? It just goes away, right? No. I read an author that said, the unresolved emotions in us, they go into the basement of our souls and they lift weights. They just go get bigger. They just grow. They ultimately, they rob us of life and they keep us from experiencing peace. And so don't be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. Overcome evil by extending forgiveness. Overcome evil by extending kindness, extending a generous spirit, cheering for them, wishing good on them. He says it heaps the coals on their head. It gets the process started quicker. You got a better chance at getting to peace when you forgive. Ultimately, Peace begins when your demand for payment ends. Peace begins when you decide you don't owe me anymore. I'm I'm not sending you the letters anymore saying I'm demanding payment. I'm not sending you the mental letters anymore saying I demand your payment. No, peace ends when we say, peace begins when the demand for payment ends. Peace begins when we say, you don't owe me. I'm letting you off the hook. I'm canceling the debt. And so let me ask you today, who is it? Who do you need to forgive? I know this is a heavy question. I know it's a hard question. But who do you need to forgive? Who's running around in your mind? Who's who's taking life from you? Who do you feel like you've locked up? But truthfully, you're the one that's the prisoner. Who who is it? Would you be willing to forgive the debt? Would you be willing to cancel the debt and say, I trust that God can repay. If they deserve a consequence, God's going to be the one to decide that. If there's something that's been taken from me, they can't pay it back anyway. Only God can restore So I'm going to forgive the debt. And then secondly, would you be willing to take the first step? 
I, I told you at the beginning that this is a process. I don't know what, I don't know where you are in the process. I don't know what the first step might be. The first step might be to write somebody a letter. The first step might be to start praying for that person. The first step might be to pray that that person experiences the wrath of God. I don't even think that's a terrible prayer. That might be as far as you can go today. I hope that God gets you to the point where you could pray, God, I hope that you spare that person from your wrath, just like I hope you spare me. Just like through Jesus, you have spared me of your wrath. I think that's where God wants to get all of us. But what's your first step today? What can you do to take a first step to forgive the debt? Let me tell you this. If, if you're looking for peace, if you would be willing to say today, this has robbed peace from my life, I just want to invite you to meet Jesus who said, you and I didn't have peace. You didn't have peace with God, but Jesus gave up his life. He didn't passively let it go. No, he actively pursued it. And in the same way, you will never passively find what you do not actively pursue. You will never passively find what you do not actively pursue. In the same way, one of my favorite things that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, he said, while we were yet sinners, I like personalizing it, when I was just a sinner, Jesus died for me. When you were still a sinner, he died for you. He made the move. He forgave the debt. He canceled the demand for payment so that you could have peace with him. And so now he just invites us in and says, go and do the same. Would you be willing to pursue peace at all costs? Pursue peace. Whatever you think it might cost you, would you be willing to pursue it? And trust that he's the one that can pay you back. He's the one that can restore. He's the one that can replenish. Hey, we're going to have a time after we're done here where we've got some uh, men and women on the team here that want to pray for you. And we would love to invite you if there's something that you want to share or something you want prayed for, we'd love to invite you up here to do that. If you have a situation with a dog that you need prayed for, this is your day as well. I'm so grateful to get to be here. I'd love to pray for us right now. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you canceled our debt. We hadn't turned around. We hadn't apologized. We hadn't said we're sorry and you died for us. I pray we'll never get over that. And so in the same way, you just invite us. You, you did it in the Lord's Prayer. You said, you asked us, you said, would you be willing to pray like this? Tell your Father in heaven that we're going to forgive others as we have been forgiven. I'd, I, I ask you that that would mark us today, that you would give us the courage to go and do the same. And I, I look forward to the day where all of us can tell a story about the way that you have provided peace for us as we've chosen to forgive. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.